0: Welcome to the Cinema Matchups podcast. We are your hosts, Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg, and we are here to bring you the first battle of our movies from books, bracket battle. So our first set of movies we watched was American Psycho, which is our 11th seed, versus Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which is our sixth seed movie. So for comparison's sake, for Rotten Tomatoes' critic consensus scores, American Psycho has a 69%, and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo has an 86%. And I should clarify that we watched the American version of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo from 2011 and not the Swedish version from 2009. So both of these based on books, American Psycho based on a novel by Brett Easton Ellis, a lot of controversies surrounding this book. We'll see why when we go ahead and talk about the movie. Uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo based on a novel by Stieg Larsson. Um, a lot of people know this set for a trilogy, but he sadly passed away before. these movies came out after this book was published, so he never got to see either adaptation of this book. We're going to talk about some unifying themes of both of these, talk about their strengths, weaknesses, battle it out, and see what movie's going to come out on top. So going into some of the themes that these movies have in common, which there were surprisingly quite a lot of things that these movies shared, the biggest one was just the overall tone of this movie. Neither a movie to watch with your children um a lot of topics we're gonna talk about in this podcast are pretty sensitive also just a heads up to everybody there are gonna be spoilers in this podcast for both of these movies so if you haven't seen either of them go watch them and come back and listen to our podcast but the overall theme of both of these movies are just darkness and violence. (laughs) Um, So again, not something you want to watch with your children and family on a Sunday afternoon for a feel good time. But specifically, we, I think, both see the theme of violence towards women in both of these movies.
1: Absolutely. Both movies have violence towards women, but they do it kind of differently. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is definitely a more serious take on it. An American Psycho is not as serious, even though the murders are still very serious. But the movie kind of goes with this tone of like almost fun
0: it's, it's a hard movie to get a read on what the genre is and I think that that's the confusing part because when this book came out when this movie came out there was a lot of backlash for the book for the movie with the author getting a lot of death threats the movie receiving some mixed reviews a lot of feminist blogs um, really just ripping this movie and this book apart because of the gratuitous violence towards women portrayed by it. So it's really hard to get a sense of exactly what the genre of this movie is when you're watching it because it's hard scenes to watch, but then there's a lot of dark comedy involved as well.
1: Yes, it's it's horror, but it's comedy, but it's suspense. And there's just a lot in it. And it's a pretty enjoyable film.
0: Yeah, we we liked this film a lot, I think, I can speak for both of us saying that. But I think the interesting part about the violence in both of these movies is how they shape the main character. When you look at American Psycho, you see the violence feeding into the ego of Patrick Bateman. And he's almost untouchable when it comes to these things. And this movie talks a lot about white privilege, male privilege, big things that like age really well into society today and what's going on in the world. But you have that scene I think one of the most memorable scenes for me is he murders someone and then drags a body bag across the entire lobby into a cab where multiple people see him and never bat an eye.
1: So, yes, you're talking about Paul's murder. I also called it the Huey Lewis murder when I wrote it down. And there were a couple things that really struck me, one of them being that Patrick is just a huge degenerate as well as a murderer but the way that he kind of like you said does all this stuff without batting an eye leads me to believe that the movie is actually done as patrick being an untrustworthy narrator and there are a couple times in the movie that i would say help that um for example we'll get into it now uh He insults a homeless man named Al and he tells him that he just stinks real bad and he's just the worst. And through the whole thing, Al is like, oh, thank you, thank you. When that happened, that's when it really struck me that One of the things in this movie is that he is a untrustworthy narrator. He's Patrick is voicing the entire movie. And I for me, when I was watching, I was like, this is a movie from Patrick's eyes. This is him going crazy. This is him doing all this violence towards women. And then when it gets to the end, it kind of switches around of like what is real, what is not real.
0: Right. And I think the scene you talk about with Al is really important in the driving force of this movie, too, and talks a lot to the white privilege aspects of this movie. And just from I personally didn't read the book, neither did Sean. But just reading about the book, it seems like the tones of racism, sexism, homophobia were so much stronger in the book. But that particular scene where a young white male Businessman is feeding his ego by putting down a homeless black man and then killing his dog to kind of put a cherry on top of it for him is like so powerful to the tone of this movie. And I think watching the movie, it's so interesting because you... You think about all of the things that are going on today and you see those people on social media like you see the Patrick Batemans, maybe not to the extent where they're murdering people, but but they're condoning those types of acts towards people.
1: There are also some some quotes that you could probably find directly on social medias that go towards Patrick Bateman when he's talking to Homeless L. I call him Homeless L. I, That's his name. Uh one of them is he looks Al directly in the face and goes, why don't you just get a job? And then he was like, oh, I could help you get a job. And it was just so like degrading towards Al. And it just shows like Patrick... Trying to be, I just put a perfectionist almost, because the Al scene comes right after he is put down by Paul, I believe. And Paul's pretty much like, yeah, that loser Patrick Bateman, because Paul you know, confuses him with someone else. Also, I want to let you know, one thing that I picked up... Well, let's
0: go back to Paul real quick. Okay. Because I have have a lot of interesting thoughts about Paul, because it's interesting seeing Patrick Bateman in this movie, and he, throughout the entire movie, is kind of this smooth, self-assured male who is kind of on the top of his game financially. He can get whatever woman he wants, but think of the things that frazzle him. There's three things that I saw in the movie. And one of them is Paul's status and wealth. Like he was, just so mad when he walked into Paul's apartment and it was nicer than his. And he had a better view than him and Paul made more money and had a better business card like all of these things. I
1: did. I wrote that quote down, the one that ends with uh, Paul's apartment overlooks the park and looks more expensive than mine. And it's just like another thing that absolutely fuels his hatred for Paul, who like like you said, is doing nothing wrong, but being maybe a little more arrogant and
0: having a better business card. Being more successful than him on paper. Like, he is striving to be the perfect man. He has a daily routine where he does his skincare every morning and he works out and he can go buy a hooker and, like, all of these things that, like, just suck in male privilege.
1: (laughs) One of my favorite things from... What you, what you were talking about, his healthcare routine or his skin routine. At one point early in the movie he says that when he wakes up and his eyes feel puffy, he uses an ice pack while doing crunches and then he pauses and says I can do a thousand. And that almost like sets the tone for what you're going to expect with Patrick is that everything he says, he also adds a but this is this and this is this and I'm this and I'm that. Uh, I wrote another one down here. Basically, this movie had so many quotes that I think are very important to finding out who Patrick Bateman is. The other one is when he is mistaken for a coworker, and he says, oh, we wear the same suits. We have the same position. We work at the same place. But he ends it with saying, but my haircut is better.
0: And it's all about status for him and being in control. I think that control piece is essential in this whole movie and like him and his violence and like all of the things in this movie feels like I can get away with this and I am untouchable because a, I've never been punished for it before, and B, society doesn't give a crap if I'm shoving a body bag into the back of a taxi at, at 11 p.m. These two people are asking me when they can meet up to go to dinner. Like It's all how, just feeding into that.
1: How, how? Where'd you get that bag? Right. Remember, he, he puts the body bag in the, the trunk, and when the two people approach him, the guy goes, oh, what kind of bag is that? And even though he has just murdered someone and there's a dead body in there, he doesn't fail to tell him where he got the bag.
0: Because it's a a status symbol. Yeah. And it's it's again, going back to those things that frazzle him. I think of the scene where he goes into the bathroom and he's going to strangle that guy Mm -hmm. and the guy turns around and hits on him and you see him become like anxious and disrupted because his sense of control is lost. Because he was going in this bathroom to murder this man, and he is so. St- homophobic that he then is just like unraveled. Same with when he has Chloe Sevigny's character in the apartment and Evelyn calls and leaves a voicemail and then it comes up with this whole like these women now have an edge over him because he was planning on murdering this girl in his apartment tonight and now his fiance is calling and disrupting that plan for him and he becomes so frazzled at the possibility that a woman could call and leave a voicemail and ruin his plan and his control for that evening.
1: I do like that scene. It almost humanizes him a little bit because then he somewhat shows remorse for what he was about to do and he tells her like and it's one of those things where she is interpreting it what he's saying differently than he is. He's like you know if you stay you might get hurt because he's planning to kill her, but in her mind, she is like, oh yeah, my feelings will get hurt. And it's like, no, he was actually planning to shoot you in the head with a nail gun. Yeah. Uh, But it it almost humanizes him in this way where he, now that he's not in control, he doesn't feel as powerful towards all of this violence and and these urges that he's getting, both sexually and violently.
0: Yeah, and taking that, like, aspect of like power and violence into Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, you get a much different narrative. Yes. Uh, You have Lisbeth, Rooney Mara's character, who so you start out Girl with the Dragon Tattoo with kind of two separate storylines that go into one. You have Daniel Craig's backstory as Michael and then you have Rooney Mara's backstory as Lisbeth and it kind of starts a little bit fragmented but it makes sense at the end of the movie because you see Lisbeth Beth's journey. And you see on paper, she's this girl who we know has had a history of violence and people are scared of her. And she's a ward of the state and all of these things. And then she meets this man who works for the government, who is going to try and teach her to be more sociable and try and teach her to be better and to be more trusting of people and to be less violent so she can handle her own finances and no longer become a ward of the state. And this is a guy who is hired to help her and in turn is extremely violent and sexually assaults her. And then it's just undoing all of these things that these men in her life are saying that they'll help her with. And so it's fueling her into this revenge and heroine aspect of these things. Like she is the hero of this story. And it shows that she is the things that have happened to her on paper have happened to her, but are not who she is. Like her triumph story and how this violence fuels her into trying to seek justice for other women who have been sexually assaulted, who have been murdered, is an incredible storyline for this character.
1: Well, it's I didn't I didn't even take it just as like towards women, but towards people that have to, I don't want to say look up to someone, but people who depend on other people and are let down by those people. Like you said, this person was supposed to help her get ingratiated back into society as, you know, quote unquote, like normal person. And he takes advantage of her and things like that. And it kind of like went with me because once she gets into the Daniel Craig's investigation, she is very much into it because it's the same thing. It's this little girl who went missing with her family and it's like this family was supposed to take care of her. These people are supposed to take care of her and they're not. And I think that's very important. And that's kind of what I saw, not necessarily like towards women specifically, but towards people that are supposed to be taking care of you and they're not and they're being selfish.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at it. And I think the concept of her having a very specific job and people paying her to investigate things and people having certain guidelines for her is interesting because she has just known to do these things all her life and she gets paid for things. She lives off of these things, but she also has this storyline of wanting to help people who have been oppressed and not owing anybody anything for it. She doesn't have to smile through the movie. She doesn't have to look a certain way. She doesn't have to act a certain way. On paper, everybody wants her to but that's not who she is. So it's an interesting movie because there are so many hard scenes to watch there are a lot of really really tough scenes and if you guys are going to watch this movie I encourage you to just be in an okay headspace when you watch it because there are really tough scenes to watch in this movie but I think those hard scenes you can watch them and appreciate her being a a survivor through all of those you can see her taking what happened to her and not letting it become her entire person. And you can see kind of that healing process after her sexual assault, kind of her redemption and her helping other people. And I think it's interesting to see that in a female character in movies, whereas a lot of times we see female characters portrayed as victims and we don't see the aftermath of, of those stories. And I thought that as hard as those scenes were, the Contrast between what happened to her and how she evolved into solving a mystery and trying to help all of these girls who have been murdered and raped along the way was really, really awesome. It was a really cool character. And I remember reading the book and not really remembering a lot of the book because I think I read it like 12 years ago. But I think the beauty of David Fincher is he knows what a good story is. And he took a really good story and didn't convolute it like he said it in Sweden still he used a lot of dark themes because that's what the book portrayed and again we love david fincher he's an absolute just masterpiece of a director
1: and that's like the thing that always sticks out to me with all of his films is that he can take something and just make it so uncomfortable
0: But it's uncomfortable because that's how it is. It's real. It feels real. It makes you sit with something that's uncomfortable and it's not sugar-coated like how you see it portrayed in conservative media. Like, it is very real. And I think, I don't know why, but I thought about a lot of the backlash parallels to some of these pieces of media that are out now that glorify certain terrible acts. The first thing that came to mind was 13 Reasons Why and the backlash that came out with that. But I think if you look at this movie, this is a rated R movie that is not for children. It is about murder and about violence. Like it is a movie that is not supposed to be viewed by children, whereas you look at something like 13 Reasons Why that is geared towards teenagers and geared towards children and children are, are watching this and they're kind of glorifying a terrible situation. And this is not glorifying it at all. It's showing how somebody becomes a survivor based on the terrible things that have happened to them. It
1: it is definitely a little more like some of those things are really rough. There's racism, right? You know, violence towards Jewish people. And it's just like it makes it feel very serious because these things are very serious. And a lot of time media just doesn't almost doesn't take these things serious enough for how brutal they can be.
0: Absolutely. And. One kind of jumping to a topic, but staying tied to it. One theme I saw in both of these movies with that like brutality and violence was how like the music and the score reflected those things in both movies. For Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, this film was nominated for an Oscar for the film editing, sound mixing. So David Fincher knows what he's doing when it comes to finding someone to do a score and finding that ominous David adventure music. Did did you catch
1: the Easter egg in there? I did not. Okay, so it looks like the the music was done by Trent Reznor. Okay. Who is... Uh, Nine Inch Nails, Mm -hmm. when Lisbeth goes, and it's the same guy she goes to. She goes to him at the beginning and at the end of the movie. Um, At the end, she gets her fake passport from him. At the beginning of the movie, when she goes to see him, he's wearing a Nine Inch Nails t-shirt. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. So that was the first thing I noticed. It was literally right at the top of the paper. It was like one of the first things to happen in the movie. But I want to go back to something that you said. You were talking about other sources of media. the, The girl with the Dragon Tattoo made you think of. I actually had two, two movies that it made me think of. The first is seven, another David Fincher movie and how the murders between both movies seven is about these like seven deadly sins murders. And then the girl with the dragon tattoo has all these like biblical verses tied to the murders, right? They talk about the one about the bird and clipping its wings and they find the girl and her arms are cut off and her head's cut off. Right. And I was like, oh, like that reminds me of Seven. And it's still David Fincher, but it's still like these biblical.
0: Well, when you think of David Fincher's like, Murder mystery films. Like, the thing about his films is that, you know, a lot of them are adapted from books, but like, he does it in a way where there's deeper meaning behind these things. Like, with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, there were these biblical verses, you know, with Seven, there was the Seven Deadly Sins. Think about Zodiac. Like, there is a pattern to all of these things that, you know, some of them unsolved and some of them have no meaning whatsoever, but all of the murderers and all of the things that happen in these David Fincher films, like it's never just cuz. Yeah. (laughs) It's always like there's a lot of interesting ways that they figure these out. And I think that's how it hooks you. You want to like figure out like what are these names and what are these numbers next to them? They're not phone numbers. This guy's been investigating it for years. Like what do they mean? And then finally, Daniel Craig daughter is like why do you have these bible verses next to your computer you know and and then it 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 snaps for him yeah but that was a really interesting way to think about it and it's it's interesting that he has movies that are adapted from books from real life events that still hold that common theme
1: yeah of i don't want to call them biblical murders of old writings right like the seven deadly sins were created how long ago and like the biblical part of it was written like so long ago Mm -hmm. and that was just one thing that stuck to me while watching this movie is that's one thing i noticed the other one i noticed was this is daniel craig being an investigator so possibly a prequel to knives out
0: <laughs> I thought the same thing. I was like, look at look at them putting Daniel Craig and Christopher Plummer together again, except, you know, Christopher Plummer's actually alive in this one.
1: Right. But <laughs> I was like, it's very similar. And then I, I was thinking about the comparing and contrasting of those two movies. Right. Because Daniel Craig is hired in order to find a family murderer in The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. When he's hired, he's told, it's someone in the family. I don't know who, but it's someone. And the same thing in Knives Out. It's someone in the family. I don't know who, but it's someone. And one of the quotes that... I picked up on, which I was like, wow, that is like dead on. And you'll know this if you've seen Knives Out. I'm not going to spoil anything. But he goes, the man who hires the detective should always be on the suspect list and is almost exactly what happens in Knives Out.
0: You said you weren't going to spoil
1: anything. Yeah, but you don't know who hired him <laughs> until the end.
0: I guess that's true. But yeah, it's interesting. And I, I wonder if Daniel Craig is just typecasted as either James Bond or (laughs) private investigator. And that's just his his avenue from here on out. So how do you think the actors like did in the movie? I think you know, if we're going to talk about the strengths of the movie, which I guess we can transition to now, like the strengths and the weaknesses and what each movie brought to bat to make them win this battle. I think the biggest strength of girl with the dragon tattoo is Rooney Mara. Like she absolutely transcends into this character and just reading about her process of turning into this character. Like all of these things were, were real. Like She learned how to ride a motorcycle. She got her nipple pierced for this movie and then said, I'm just going to leave it in in case they want to do two more because it's too painful to get redone. Like she got all of those piercings. She became that character. She lost a bunch of weight because she felt like she wanted to do that. David Fincher didn't make her do it. She wanted to. And I think that's the power of watching this movie is you're not watching this movie and seeing Rooney Mara. You are seeing Lisbeth. You're seeing this character and I think that it was such a powerful performance. And she was nominated for an Oscar for this movie. Didn't win. I don't know who she lost out to that year. But she just really transcends into that character. And you believe everything she's doing. It's not like a Hollywood actress on a motorcycle or, oh, is that a stunt double? It's like... As she flips her hair
1: driving by, like...
0: Yeah, you, you look at this and you're like, wow, that is someone who became that character. So that was my biggest strength for Girl with the Dragon Tattoo.
1: I 100% agree. The strength of that, David Fincher also being a strength. And another thing that I really liked, and I put it in, uh, I kind of listed a couple of my favorite scenes. When Michael is sneaking through the house of Stellan Skarsgård Martin towards the end. Mm-hmm. I have, I, I don't remember a time that I've had to like hold my breath a little bit more. You know, I don't remember the last movie I saw where I was like, <gasps> you know, right? You can see that he leaves the door open a crack and like right away, right? That's something that you catch and he grabs the knife and it's like he's going through this house and there's nobody in it, but he's moving slowly and it's like building this anticipation and you're just like waiting and waiting and waiting. And it goes into Stellan Skarsgård eventually coming home and he he gives a quote right when Daniel Craig comes back. And I think it's very interesting and it is he didn't make Michael Daniel Craig come back into the house. Right. He just asked him. And he is quoted later in that scene saying the fear of not offending is stronger than the fear of pain.
0: Yeah. When when he said that, I was like, "Ooh, that hits hard because like how often do we do things that we know could potentially be dangerous or uncomfortable because we're trying to please other people? But I think that's also a contrast between Ro- Rooney Mara's character and Daniel Craig's character. Yes. She does a lot of things. Things in this movie that make her uncomfortable to make ends meet or to do these things, but then turns around and gets her her revenge on all of these situations because she refuses to be placed into that position.
1: Absolutely. And it's not just by being a ward of the state, but also when she's hired to do the background check on Daniel Craig. She is just being nice and things like that.
0: Yeah. And I think talking about like, when you say that David Fincher is a strength of this movie, clearly you guys know, we have like just a David Fincher shrine in our home. Basically. We just <laughs> love him so much. But, um, uh, but that, you know, I talked a little bit about the score, and I think it's super important to recognize some of the elements of the music he, he put in there. And he got Karen O from the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs to do Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song for the opening credits. And honestly, one of the best opening credit scenes I've ever seen in a movie. Like you sit down and you watch those opening credit scenes and you're like, all right, some shit's about to happen here. With, like, the,
1: with the visuals and everything. It's like that like inky visual type of thing going on while all the names are being listed. I was like, oh, I have to strap in for this one.
0: Yeah. And he got a female singer to do this song where essentially you're just yelling. You're just like screaming to be heard. And I think it's, it's a direct reflection of this character and just all of the sounds and the the score in general. Like there's this one scene after she, after Lizbeth is in the office and there is a man outside of the office door with a floor waxer and you hear the buzzing sound of the floor waxer and this is prior to Rooney Mara and Daniel Craig's character ever meeting and the floor waxer sound automatically like transitions into the next scene where Daniel Craig is on an airplane and you hear the buzzing sound from the airplane. So the way he uses his score and his sound to transition a scene and connect characters is amazing and there's tons of examples of that in this movie and a bunch of others but i love that how about strengths for american psycho what did you have as it's heavy hitter
1: christian bale Okay. Uh, Everything that Christian Bale is doing in this movie is fantastic. Just the way he talks, it's like I said, we've gone through all of those quotes. It's just the pretentious style of which he not only narrates the movie, but also communicates to other people in the movie when he's like, I'm not going anywhere unless we have a reservation. You know, it's it's just so pretentious, but also he is in incredible shape he, there's something about Christian Bale. He in this movie, he has like a smile that you kind of want to root for.
0: So, is there? Let me let me ask you because there's an interesting fact I, I found on the internet, and I don't know what source I got it from, but this is just per report. Does he remind you of any other actor
1: in this movie specifically? Yeah, not that I know of. He's a little. Happy. He's a little, like, over-the-top happy. And the biggest part is when he does do his Huey Lewis killing, he does, like, a, a little dance right before he grabs an axe and drives it into uh, Paul's head.
0: Yeah. So I read that he took a lot of inspiration from Tom Cruise to develop this character, which makes sense. I mean, the kind of self-assured, fast paced way he talks is very like quintessential Tom Cruise Mm -hmm. and like just the mannerisms and the smile. What I read was he took a lot of like Tom Cruise's way of smiling and adapted that into Patrick Bateman's character. And I think it's so interesting because in my opinion, Tom Cruise does have that like like, <laughs> eerie kind of he's up to something element about him that would work for Patrick Bateman's character and if you think about it if you put Tom Cruise in that role I don't think he'd be that bad because he would just be kind of being himself a little bit.
1: Yeah it's like there's something mysterious with him and watching the movie you know but it's like the way he's projecting himself onto other people it's just so smiley everything's so positive everything's great he has money that has like that little bit of Tom Cruise where it's like Tom Cruise is kind of cool right like it kind of <laughs> whether you like him or not he's like a big action star and things like that and he's kind of like a Hollywood leading man and he has been for a while
0: Right.
1: And it's kind of that bravado that comes. It's that
0: air about him. Yes. Yeah. So I I thought that was interesting. Um, My biggest strength for American Psycho is just how well it ages. I read a Screen Rant article that was like, American Psycho is better in 2020 than it was in 2000. It is just so relevant to the time. And if you told me that movie came out a week ago, I'd be like, oh, my God, somebody was so quick on current events and hot topics of today that they did a really good movie based out of it. I just think aside from like the scenery and the locations and and things like that, that show it was clearly shot a while ago, the whole overall tone of the movie, everything ages so well. And that was my biggest strength for it. So one thing
1: I, I wanted to talk about, we didn't talk about it at all, but in American Psycho, when he's having normal conversations with people and he's like slipping up on how crazy he is, someone asks him what he likes to do and he says murders and executions and she goes oh I know someone that likes to do mergers and acquisitions and it's the amount of times that they do it is so funny and it's really funny every time, even though he's talking about like killing people and his lust for murdering. And it's just like, I loved the way it was shot as like he was saying these things, but people were picking up on not necessarily that.
0: Yeah. And I think it spoke to, to like, not only the privilege of his character, but also the shallowness of like everybody in the entire movie. I was going to say that that there Um, was not like a down to earth character besides Chloe Sevigny as just the assistant who is like aiming to please and make ends meet. Like none of those people were people that you would be friends with yes they were all kind of scummy and I think you know going back to the music and comparing like the music to each film like is killer soundtrack in American Psycho like literally a a really great soundtrack but thinking about how he uses the music like he talks about songs and puts on music in order to drown out other people's feelings or conversations like it's, it's his way of being so egotistical that he can talk about these songs as if he is so cultured and so like aware of the roots of them and that he knows more than people and ignore people's like feelings or the conversations they're trying to have with him.
1: How about when he is when he gets approached by the detective Willem Dafoe and Willem Dafoe pulls out the CD, right? The Huey Lewis CD. Mm -hmm. And he looks at him and he's like, not really that big into music. Yeah, And I think that's just so funny because it's like, or not funny, but it's like he is only being interested in music when he's indulging himself, whether it be murdering Paul, having threesomes, murdering these women that he's having threesomes with. It's interesting to see that that like he is actually pretty proficient in a knowledge of music, but only wants to show that when he's about to murder someone because he's better than them. And I want to go back to one thing that you said, because I found it very interesting about how shallow everyone else is in the move around him in the movie and I think when it gets to the end you realize through the whole movie he's striving for perfection control and fitting in right mm-hmm. but by the end of the movie you realize that nobody cares not even the person where he was like hey I left you that voicemail and he was like yeah so what it was pretty it was funny Pretty funny yeah and the voicemail was him being like I killed 20 to 40 people and it's just like nobody actually cares what he's doing and by the end of the movie it seems that he feels that like what is he even trying to be perfect in control or fit in
0: for right but it's like I don't know if it's the piece that nobody cares what he's doing or no one believes he would be capable of doing these things Mm -hmm. because of his status because of where he works because of where he lives everyone thinks that like oh it absolutely can't happen there there's no way that he lives in a, a penthouse and he he works for not as good a as giant Paul's. company. Not as good as Paul's. But like I think it, it speaks to his privilege that no one believed him because they're like oh you're just being silly. So what did you like least about both of these movies? What What did they not bring into battle? So
1: I, I, I really liked Both of them. I would give The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo the edge over American Psycho. There's just so much. It's a longer movie, but it fit a lot of meat and potatoes into the movie, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's just a very full movie. And American Psycho is almost just like you can look into a lot of stuff, but it doesn't really delve deep with you. It kind of leaves you up to make these interpretations yourself. And some people might like that, but I kind of want to be drugged through a story like The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo did. It like takes you from the beginning of the story and brings you all the way through until the end. American Psycho is just like you watching things happen.
0: Which is interesting for a couple reasons because a lot of the reviews comparing Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the Swedish version, versus the American version, a lot of people had that complaint of the American version was that the Swedish version was very clear cut and it was very, like, you can tell where it was going and it didn't have kind of those separate backstories. So it's interesting that you say that. But with American Psycho, that was one of my biggest things against it was the whole movie. I didn't know how to feel like I don't want to get necessarily trapped in having a genre define an entire movie for me. But like I I couldn't classify this movie. I didn't know if it was a comedy and I should laugh at it or if it was a drama or if it was a thriller or a horror movie. It kind of fit into a lot of different things, but it didn't settle somewhere for me. Like I didn't feel like it was a completed full movie. And my only thing with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was at sometimes I feel like the dialogue was so heavy and Fincher like really really wanted to get the book adaptation right like he wanted to get all of the points from the book into the movie and at times I feel like the characters just talked so fast wow, 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 wow. that we actually have had to put on subtitles for this movie because I was like I don't understand anything they're saying they're talking so quickly but other than that like both really really good movies
1: I would recommend Recommend both of these movies to people
0: for sure so our last topic before we go into our winner okay talk about little details that made a big difference and for me starting out I think girl with the dragon tattoo the use of flashbacks was incredible and David Fincher does this better than anybody. So I think back to Benjamin Button, if you've seen that kind of the cab scene where you have someone who's over narrating a scene and using like quick 10 second flashback sequences right behind each other to tell a story. And I think you look at that and you're like, oh, he just took 30 pages of this book, put it into a five minute flashback scene. And I get it. I get what Christopher Plummer is trying to say. I get the backstory of this girl. Like I understand all of it. And I think that that small detail was awesome in that movie.
1: I 100% agree. I actually put it under one of my favorite scenes. The first flashback, the way the house looks, the way the yard looks, the way the table looks with her missing, all of it looks so good. And it's like the car crash looks good and it really like amps the movie up from there. From that scene specifically, that's when it starts to turn the dial and the movie starts to really gain some legs and start moving. American Psycho, like I said, the the thing that got me with American Psycho, the thing that I really, really liked about it, the small detail was just like how zany it was because it got to continually be zany uh for example i wrote christian bale wielding chainsaw naked you know it's just like a little over the top the way like a movie like this should be
0: It's like a shock value on top of a already shocking movie. Like it's, it's taking like him murdering someone and then adding him being butt naked with a chainsaw.
1: Yeah. It almost like doubles down on what it's trying to do. And I, I really appreciate that.
0: Yeah. And for me, for American Psycho, my small detail, again, like two movies that had really good opening credit scenes. And for me, that opening credit scene and the use of foreshadowing where they're at this like. Fancy restaurant, and you see the opening credits, and you see like what seemed to be blood droplets fall down the screen, but then you just see it as like a decorative topper to a cheesecake. Like it's again just like encompassing this privilege theme throughout the whole movie, and just that those credits and the use of just foreshadowing that this movie is you already know if you've read the book and you. You can guess from the the title of the movie that like this is not going to be like some kind of love story and there's probably like some murder elements involved with it but then it makes you kind of second guess because you see these droplets and you're like oh it's just some kind of sauce that they're putting on the side of their steak but it's just it was a really fun opening credits scene i think
1: yes i really like that too
0: any other points you think we have not covered before we talk about what moves on and what our battle winner will be?
1: Um, I'm I'm looking to see if there's any other quotes that I really liked, and I don't think I have any.
0: Okay. Well, if you're ready, we'll do a three, two, one countdown. Okay. And we will re- reveal what will move on to the next round in our bracket challenge. All right. You ready? Yep. Three, two, one. The Girl Girl with with the the Dragon dragon Tattoo. tattoo. Yeah, it was a spectacular movie. It's a long one, three hours long, but definitely worth it. Just for Rooney Mara's performance, David Fincher being just a kick-ass dude.
1: And Daniel Craig also being very good. We didn't talk about him as much, but he was also very good in it.
0: And just a lot of like supporting characters just really bringing this movie to life. I'm interested to see potentially the Swedish version and how it compares. But overall, we really, really love this movie and would definitely recommend it. So check it out and check, check out both of them. Check out both of them and check out our next podcast because we're going to continue on with the six verse eleven seeds for our next podcast. So that will drop on Monday, July 13th, and we will be watching it, the 1990 Tim Curry version, because we've got a. A lot of recommendations for it from people who wanted to suggest that for our bracket challenge, but we've seen the most recent version quite a few times. Both parts. Both parts. So we're going to go back and watch the 1990 version of it versus still Alice with Julianne Moore. So that will be our next 6 verse 11 seed. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the Cinematchups. We post updates on there regularly, remind you to fill out your bracket, but that is going to be closed right now because we have all of our predictions in we're starting this movie watching experience and it's going to be a good time so stay tuned listen to our next podcast it's available on spotify apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, anchor a couple other streaming networks and thank you for listening and for the cinema matchups we are kim kohler and sean rodenberg